Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Slash Film Daily. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com. And today we're going to present an interview with Bart Layton, the writer-director of a new heist film called American Animals. I saw this movie at Sundance earlier this year. I'll link to my review in the show notes. But just to provide some context for those who don't know, the film is based on the true story of an audacious art heist. It features actors like Evan Peters, Barry Keoghan, and Blake Jenner playing the young thieves, but what makes this movie really interesting is that it also includes interviews with the real thieves as well. Bart Layton made a documentary called The Imposter in 2012, and American Animals is his first traditional narrative feature. One more quick note before we begin, I spoke with Leighton on the phone for this interview, and while I was in my apartment in Los Angeles, he was walking around in San Francisco, so occasionally you'll hear some streetcars and things like that going by in the background. Overall, though, the audio quality is pretty good. So with that, enjoy my conversation with American Animals writer-director Bart Leighton. So intercutting the interviews of the real guys with the action seems like sort of a natural next step for you as a filmmaker. Can you talk about bridging that gap between documentary and the more traditional narrative filmmaking? Sure, yeah. Um, I hadn't necessarily intended uh, that that would be uh, sort of the approach. I kind of... Uh, I suppose after the imposter, I felt like uh, I guess I, you know, I got offered a lot of um, sort of movie movies. Um, you guys call them narratives. I mean, I would argue that probably most documentaries, unless they're completely without story or structure, are a narrative as well. But you know what I mean. I, I sort of I and I couldn't quite get my head around. Um, this idea that they might, I, I, was, I suppose I was sort of, of I had this um, itch to scratch and that, and that was sort of um, this idea that there might be a new way to tell a true story mm-hmm. that hadn't quite been done before. And, you know, when I came across this story, which was, to begin with, it felt like, you know, it was a fun story and I was sort of intrigued enough by the fact that it was a crime committed by 
uh, a group of young men who really shouldn't be uh, caught within a million miles of a crime scene, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So that was intriguing. And then there was something about uh, the letters that, yeah, so I started exchanging letters with them. And at that point, they were kind of a long way into a prison sentence. And, um, and I guess it was the letters they sent which felt to me like it was more than just, uh, you know, a fun yarn about a robbery, that actually there might be something more uh, interesting about this idea of, you know, these rather lost young men who were, you know, in search of an identity and were in search of um, finding some meaning in their lives or some purpose and doing so through very ill-advised uh, means. <laughs> right. Because of, yeah, because of the way, because I suppose their honesty about the motivations for what they've done, you know, particularly Spencer, who's the Barry Keoghan character, you know, he wrote to me in his letters about uh, you know, dreaming of becoming an artist and feeling that the one thing that was going to prevent him from becoming an artist of any great value was the fact that he never had any life experience worth worth a damn, you know, in his mind anyway. And so that idea, you know, of having a central character whose main problem is that he doesn't have a problem felt like a brilliant starting point and because I suppose I slightly, you know, despite what they've done, I kind of fell in love with that honesty. I, I thought, is there a way to include them in the film in a way that it definitely isn't in any shape or form a documentary, mm -hmm. but it also isn't just that kind of classic thing that we've all seen a million times, which is, you know, you see that caption based on a true story at the front, and then... You know, at the end, you see a, a bunch of photographs of the real people. Right. Um, which, you know, it feels like such a cop-out because... And, it, you know, the other thing was, it's such a good story that it didn't need kind of much sort of Hollywood embellishment. Mm -hmm. it, you know, you could... You know, there are lots of different ways of telling it. You could have told the FBI story. You know, it could have had a more catch-me-if-you-can type structure. But for me, it was all about these guys crossing a line they should never have crossed. And because also, you know, it's sort of a movie about um, these young guys falling in love with a movie fantasy, or, you know, tr almost trying to live inside a movie rather than their own right. reality. Right. Yeah. Uh, it felt like it presented an opportunity to, to have a, a form which, which reflected that idea of falling into a movie, if you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I actually watched Becoming Alexander in preparation for our discussion today, and there's a moment in that when uh, Oliver Stone talks about how Alexander the Great was probably filled with ideas about his destiny from a very young age, and that's an idea that sort of pops up in American Animals, too. What is it about the concept of entitlement that... I cannot believe you watched that. <laughs> where, the, where the fuck did you find that? <laughs> I found it on YouTube. Oh, my God. That is well. <laughs> That was, a, that was something that I had to rescue. Uh, <laughs> God almighty, I have no 
idea that that was sort of in the well yeah i've, I've seen uh i've seen the imposter and i wanted to go back and just check out some of the other work you did to see if there were any sort of connecting <laughs> themes that i could find wow. and, and one of the things that i that i noticed was that this this concept of entitlement and, and destiny and all that sort of popped up in that uh, becoming alexander special so i was just wondering if there was uh what is it about the concept of entitlement that sort of interests you as a storyteller um i think i think uh, well, leaving the Becoming Alexander thing aside, because uh, I'm not entirely to blame for that. That was that was a sort of rescue job as a favour. But um, I'm really, really impressed that you dug it out. My God. Um, well, I think you know what. I think there's something. I tell you what it is that I think interests me um, is that idea that um, we, you know, you know, without getting too kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, intellectual or wanky, as we might say in the UK, um, you know, there's something about, you know, that there's a whole theme about Darwin in the film, you know, and that's why it's called American Animals, this idea of, you know, that, that we've kind of evolved beyond the point of being able to survive in the kind of Darwinian sense, right? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yep. Like... Like, we're now sort of just consumers, right? Right. We don't understand what it means to have to worry about, you know, fear of, you know, not eating. You know, most of us, and particularly, you know, these guys in this community. Right. Um, so, definitely, there's something about this, this thought that... You know, are you familiar with the hierarchy of needs, you know, Maslow and all that stuff? Oh, no, I'm not. Okay, if you Google it, there's like a triangle, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's like, you know, these are the things you worry about. First, I guess, it's food, then it's shelter, all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, your question about entitlement and why it's interesting is because, you know, with entitlement and privilege comes choice. And, you know, opportunity, you know, massive amounts of opportunity. The problem is that with these guys, they then begin to worry about other things, which is this sort of existential need to be special, to be interesting, to be important. And because of that, you know, that entitlement, that idea that, you know, you are entitled to be special, you are entitled to lead a really interesting life, to be um, a person of value, of interest, you know, and now, you know, we live in this uh, culture where all of that can kind of be measured. You know, the fact that I can, you know, do you have more Twitter followers than me? Um, does that mean you're more interesting or more important? Or You know what I mean? Right. So these were the ideas that I was really interested in. You know, that felt like they were partly motivations for these privileged, entitled young men doing this crime because, you know, they'd been brought up with this expectation that they were going to amount to something great. And, you know, that slow, dawning reality that most of us experience or whatever uh, of, well, we might not be, you know, remarkable. We might not be different. We might not leave a mark on the world. Right. Um, so so I, I think it's that idea that, that I felt is worth talking about and it's important I mean you know in today's conversation you know one could argue well why the fuck would you make a 
a film about, you know, privileged white guys. Um, but, you know, it's part of the same conversation because these privileged white guys, they're not thinking about how to kind of make the world a more um, balanced, equal place. They're thinking, how, am I going to be famous? Am I going to be uh, more successful than my dad? You know, all this kind of stuff. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't know whether that's interesting or... Yeah, no, no, that's that's what I was looking for, for sure. Uh, at one point in this movie, the characters go to Blockbuster and rent a bunch of heist films. Is that something <laughs> yeah. that happened in real life? Because a lot of heist movies don't end well. You would think that they would be sort of put off of the idea after watching all of those. <laughs> yeah, it's a great observation. Um, I think... Sorry, that was a tram going past in uh, San Francisco. Uh, I'm completely lost, by the way. <laughs> uh, just wandering, walking through uh, God knows where. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that A, yes, it did absolutely really happen. They they didn't really know where to start. So, you know, and if you're not a kind of professional criminal, you look at all of the, uh, you know, heist movies that have ever been made and try and get inspiration. Uh, there is even a line, I don't know whether you remember, there's a line in the film where Spencer says, to Warren, you know, didn't they all die in the end of that movie? Mm-hmm. You know, which is sort of supposed to be a kind of slightly foreshadowing moment. Right. But, um, yes, you're absolutely right. If they'd been clever, they would have realized that. <laughs> I mean, I think there is a line in the uh, in the film as well where Barry says to Warren, Spencer says to Warren, you know, uh, the bad guys don't get to walk off into the sunset with the loot. And he's like, well, how would we be the bad guys? And, you know, Spencer's like, well, we'd be the Robert Warren, you know what I mean? Right. Like, they just didn't, in their mind, that wasn't uh, how it was, you know, in their minds, it was a victimless crime. Yeah. I also think, I also, you know, I don't know what you felt, but I don't think they ever really imagined they were going to go through with it. Right, yeah, yeah. I definitely got that sense. I I think they fell in love with the, I think they fell in love with the fantasy and they wanted to live in it. I mean, you know, one of them described it to me in a letter from prison, I think it was Eric, who said, you know, for us it was like our version of Fight Club. Yeah. You know, the secret that we had that set us apart from everyone else, so. Yeah, I think that's really true. The movie features a a long, continuous shot that I really loved. It it makes the heist look like the easiest thing in the world. Can you tell me about the origins and the execution of that shot? Yeah, sure. Um, so originally I had planned to shoot that in like, instead of one take in like 150 different shots, it was going to be this, like a drum solo, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was going to be like a kind of super percussive, uh, kind of incredibly, uh, fast moving whiz bang kind of, you know what I mean? Like a, you know, loads of different, um, loads of different cuts and you know this incredibly slick sequence and then when we got around to the schedule and the, like the first AD said to me you know you know at best I can give you like three hours <laughs> for that sequence and I was like what I mean you know it would have to shoot it the way I'd originally imagined and sort of storyboarded was going to take at least a day or two yeah and so then I was like well maybe the way to do this is do it just in one 
shots. So all of the choreography becomes like the slip movement of it becomes the magic of that shot. You know that it's this very balletic thing. And because I didn't really have uh, much help, we just basically instead of shooting it for that whole three hours, what we did was we rehearsed it for like two and a half hours and shot it for half an hour. You know what I mean? Like yeah. We went we. We just rehearsed it, and then and I was and I was blocking it out, and I was kind of doing all the movements, and that was, it was a really great feeling because everyone was contributing, the actors, you know, me and Dow, BJ, you know, all of the people, and then it just I was looking at it, and I was like, mm, it's kind of fun, but it doesn't look great. So then I was like, okay, let's put the camera up and make the camera kind of almost dance around as well, so it's constantly moving. And uh, we had this great Steadicam guy called John Lehman. And, uh, and so once that came and you started looking at the whole sequence through the monitor, it was like, oh, yeah, this is really going to work. And it's going to be great. And so, but the problem is, is if you do a long one shot like that, where you've got four different people and they all have to hit like a perfect beat, something always goes wrong, you know. And so we shot it like, I think it was on the 16th take. We got it, and then everyone in the whole place erupted in this huge cheer, so that was very satisfying. <laughs> uh, things in this movie are, are largely pretty fun and breezy for a while, but without giving too much away, the movie definitely takes a turn that's pretty gut-wrenching. Can you talk about navigating the tonal shift there? Yes, I mean, that was always something that was very... Uh, what's the word? Very... Um, I guess, rigidly uh, written into the script. You know, the idea that the idea was that the sort of grammar and tone of the film would uh, reflect the um, the, pre- the kind of protagonists' descent into the movie fantasy. You know, that they become as they become progressively more detached from reality than we. We do as well, so you'll notice in the film that all of those kind of non-fiction elements disappear, that it becomes more like that, that single shot you mentioned, you know, it's more Ocean's Eleven than it is Dog Day Afternoon, you know right. what I mean? Right, yeah. And, and so then there was this very clear point where I wanted the... When they cross the line and the reality crushes into the kind of fantasy in this head-on collision, that we pull the rug out from not just um, the characters, but also the audience to a certain extent. You know, we are suddenly thrust into a very, a much more uh, difficult to watch, much more kind of visceral documentary-like, kind of, you know, it's much more raw and real and violent. And that idea was that, you know, you as an audience are suddenly reminded that, oh shit, you know, I was kind of going along with this, you know, I was rooting for them as well, because I also needed them to, to do this ridiculously ill-advised thing, because I also want to know what happens on the other side of that line. Right. And then when you cross it, you realize you can't really cross back. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. D- should I let you go? I- I'm not sure if I have time for another question or not. Or are you? Uh, uh, go, yeah, no, go go for it. You got. I- I've got to get off in one minute, but it's 
I think I was light pulling you, so go ahead. Okay. Um, I noticed that one of the things that the movie touches on is the sort of fluid nature of memory. And as a filmmaker coming from a documentary background, I imagine that's something that you've grappled with a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's something that's a constant source of fascination, you know, and and somewhat, uh, and slight, um, what's the word, um, concern, I guess, in that, like how unreliable memory can be, you know, that it's not, uh, you, know, we re- we, you know, we trust that the things that we remember are versions of things that have actually happened to us, but the truth is they're not, it's not like an instant replay of what actually, ha- you know, it's a very subjective thing and it's filled with all of your emotions and all the things that you want it to be. And that, you know, that was a very big factor of the, the imposter you know, this idea of, you know, creating the truths that, you know, or believing the truths that suit us rather than the truths that maybe are, are truest, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think with this, what I wanted to do with this movie was to sort of say to the audience, you know, like, we all understand how this works, right? You know, we're all very familiar with the game of, how, of, of fictionalizing uh, true stories, you know, we, 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 most, you know, I don't know how, what percentage of films these days start with that caption card, this is based on a true story, and then you watch, you know, uh, Natalie Portman play Jackie Kennedy or whatever it is, and, you know, but you know, you go along with it, and I wanted to say to the audience, let's, let's, let's be really open about this whole thing, about what is true and what is not, and what is, uh, fiction and what is, um, you know, a sort of a kind of version of the truth that we can't ever, you know, know 100% is, is true. And so, that I, you know, when you're faced with two conflicting versions of the same thing, as a, as a dramatist, you, can, you, you, you're either, you, ch- you either choose one and go and kind of say, well, uh, I prefer this version because, you know, it's more cinematic. Or what I ended up choosing to do was to kind of basically dramatize both versions and and explore the fact that, you know, that, that it's it's uh, it's hard to be, um, you know, a hundred percent on what the the truth of that situation is when two people remember it differently. So. That's where that idea of dramatizing, you know, one conversation across two locations. Yeah. Well, I think it turned out really well. Yeah, no, no, no. It's great. I I think it it came across really well in the movie. Um, Congratulations on the film, and thanks so much for speaking with me. I appreciate your time. Oh, no, likewise. Take care, man. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed that. Again, you can read my full review of the film at SlashFilm.com, and I will link to it in the show notes. My name is Ben, and you can find me on Twitter at BenPairs. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, and Spotify, and email us feedback, questions, or any suggestions you have to peter at SlashFilm.com. Be sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. And if you can, do us a favor and take two minutes to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, because that really helps us out in terms of visibility. 
Tell your friends about the show, spread the word however you can, and we'll talk to you next time.